me if you've got your Bible open in front of you to, from our back at page 1052, that's Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Um, there we'll find the parable that was read to us just a few moments ago by the guys from Sunday Focus. Thank you guys for reading so clearly. Luke chapter 18, and we're looking at verses 19 down to verse 14. Page 1052 if you've got one of the church Bibles. I wonder whether you would count yourself as a confident person. You say you're a confident person? I wonder what you'd call on evidence to back that up if you would say you were. Um, and if you would call yourself a confident person, I wonder how critical you would say your confidence is, how important it is to you as you seek to live day by day. Uh, if you would not call yourself a confident person, uh, would you say that your lack of confidence is is a bit of a handicap for you as you seek to go about your daily life. Well, whichever camp you find yourself in, there's one TV program that's on our airwaves at the moment, just past the halfway point in numbers, is The Apprentice, where it seems like everybody has to be top to toe awash with confidence. One of the best quotes of the candidates on The Apprentice um, came like this, I am practically perfect in every way. Um, I've built myself up to be a successful business person and I've had two children while I've done it. How can, how can I do that, you ask? Well, because I'm Superwoman. Um, that quote, of course, came from Jazz, who was fired in the first week. So confidence may be there, but that doesn't necessarily mean that confidence is placed in the right thing. Confidence can be misplaced, and when it is misplaced, confidence is deadly because it lulls you into a false sense of security. Certainly that was the case for Jazz. Our Bible passage this evening is spoken to a group of people who were chock full of confidence. Did you notice that down in verse 9? There Jesus describes them like this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Here is a group of people set before Jesus who were certain that they would be people who would gain God's approval. Let's get the thumbs up from him. It's worth saying that our culture, really, that is the dominant theme in our culture. I don't know whether you'd count yourself as religious or not. But really the dominant theme in people today is one of confidence before God that he would give them the thumbs up, whether they've given him any of their time or attention or not. The thought that God might not grant them approval is a million miles from most of their minds. So this is a timely parable for us to look at this evening. The group of people that Jesus is speaking to here are confident that they would gain God's approval. But Jesus speaks this parable to warn them that their confidence could well be misplaced. And if that is the case, then it would be deadly. And so the question we're going to try and grapple with as we look at this parable this evening is, can we be confident that we can gain God's approval? that we can get God's thumbs up? And if so, where should our confidence be placed? Can we be sure that we can place our confidence correctly somewhere where we can be certain that we can gain God's approval? That's what we're trying to do is we try and work our way through this passage and look at it. What I want to do briefly is I want to skate back through the story of this parable and see what's going on there, introduce us to the two characters, and then we're going to take a, a little bit of time to work our way through each of their prayers and to work out where should our confidence be placed. The scene of the story is set in the temple. 
The temple was the place where God's presence was especially said to dwell and where people would go to pray. It was a hive of activity. And as we step into the temple, we find there two characters. The first man listed is a Pharisee. A Pharisee. Now, for the audience before Jesus, as they would have heard a Pharisee mentioned, here is a man who would have gained unanimous approval from all of them. They would all think this guy is the good guy. If we'd have put him in a modern equivalent, what would he look like today? Well, this guy would be a churchgoer. He would be there every Sunday. He'd be there twice on Sunday. Any midweek meeting, he'd be there. He would be an avid student of the Bible. He would know his Bible back to front and inside out. He would have conservative views on Scripture and on the need for him to be obedient to what God says. He would be a patriot. He'd love his country. And um, he would be really generous with his money. If you were wanting to stump up some money for a good cause, you'd find yourself a Pharisee who would undoubtedly bankroll what you're doing. The Pharisees, as Jesus tells this story to this group of people, are the good guys. Unanimous approval would they have received. That's the first character, the Pharisee. The second character is a tax collector. And here we find... The group of people before Jesus would have reacted to the suggestion of a tax collector with boos and hisses. Here is a man who would have received unanimous hatred and vitriol and rejection. The strength of feeling towards a tax collector in Jesus' day would be parallel to the strength of feeling that people feel today towards the killers of Lee Rigby, that drummer who was killed in Woolwich, savagely by those two men. Real hatred. Why would people feel that way towards tax collectors? Well, because of the nature of their work. So these guys were working for the enemy. They were, tax collectors today don't get a particularly good press. But they are at least working for our government, whereas tax collectors in Jesus' day were working for the enemy Roman occupying forces. And the nature of how the Romans set up the businesses, they basically sold franchises, and tax collectors would need to fleece people, steal from people, in order to get rich in the process. And they would get rich, and they'd do it very well. A a parallel would be, think of someone living in Nazi-occupied France during the Second World War, maybe a mayor of a town who um, is just working as an informant for the Nazis on the French resistance, and all the time getting rich in the process, picking up properties around the town as he grasses on the French resistance. The same sense of hatred would be felt towards the tax collector in our story as would be for a Frenchman back in the Second World War doing that kind of thing. And this would have meant that the tax collector was cut off from his people, no social circles would be open to him, he would be cast out, and he would have no access to the temple to get anywhere near God. So two characters set up in our story, Pharisee, Thumbs up all round for this guy. Tax collector, booze and hisses. Hatred felt towards him. The action is pretty simple in our story, isn't it? It's, it's set up at the, in the temple. It would have been a hive of activity. Loads of people milling around. And the two men simply are praying. And the Pharisee is, is listed as praying first. We see him there praying in verse 11. And here is a man. Boy, does this man know how to pray. And surely this, guy, this, guy, this guy's a good guy. You, you can imagine maybe a mother taking her child through the temple and she'd have stopped and said, boy, listen to that man and how he prays. 
when you're grown up, I hope you pray like him. For he prays a thankful prayer. He prays like he knows God. He recites his spiritual pedigree. He's obviously got some gravitas to himself. And he's seemingly making himself a model to others. If, if his prayer was on the voice, the spiritual version of the voice, this would be a man who would walk out onto the stage confident that all he needs to do is strike the first note and all four chairs turn round. That's how the Pharisee prays. But the tax collector prays very differently. Again, if we set the scene of the voice, the blind auditions, if this Pharisee would walk out onto the, onto the stage there, he would be certain that he was going to sing his heart out and nobody would want anything to know. No chairs would turn around and he'd have to walk off in shame. He won't even look up to heaven. He does not even himself gives himself any grounds for God's approval or acceptance. Forget listing his spiritual pedigree. The only thing he lists before God is his spiritual criminal record. I'm a sinner. And surely this man can't gain God's approval. And yet the punchline that would have pulled the rug from under the feet of Jesus' hearers is found right down at verse 14. It says this, I tell you that this man, referring to the tax collector, the guy who would have been met with booze and hisses, went home justified with God's approval. Only one man leaves the temple with God's approval, and it's not the man you're thinking. It is the tax collector, not the guy with spiritual pedigree. It's the scumbag. It's more unthinkable than Wigan Athletic winning the FA Cup. Who would have predicted, it, predicted that at the beginning of the season? Not me. But how is this possible? We've seen that the Pharisees were the good guys. The tax collectors were the bad guys. Well, for us to see why that is the case, we need to work our way through the prayers of these men and put them under the microscope. And we're going to find that the Pharisee may talk a good game, but he's all smoke and mirrors. He is all bark and no bite. So let's take each man and basically have a look at each of them. So first up, we see the Pharisee, and here we find wrong confidence. Wrong confidence. And it's worth saying, before we go any further, that whenever we look at a parable like this of Jesus, each character for us should be held up like a mirror before us. And as we look at these people, we should be asking ourselves, do I see my likeness in the character I see portrayed here? So I'd like you to ask yourself these honest questions as we work through these prayers of these men. Do I see myself here in how he prays, in what he does? Do I see myself here? So first up, we find wrong confidence, wrong confidence in the Pharisee. And this springs instantly from the tone of the man's prayer. So right at the beginning of verse 11, it says there, the Pharisee stood up. And that verb, stood up, was often used of people as they would stand up to do exactly what I'm doing, make an announcement, a presentation, a sermon. So really, even from the off, the Pharisee's here to make a presentation. He's not here to speak to God. He's here to talk about himself. And it's striking that as you work your way through his prayer, God is mentioned only once. And he, the Pharisee, is mentioned five times. Five, one. That's a, that's a heavy thrashing. And so it seems like the tone of his prayer is completely misplaced. He's praying not to God, but about himself. And he's clear that he, you'd work your way all the way through the prayer. Is he asking God for anything? No, he's asking God for zip. It is clear that this man has only come to the temple to boast. 
he's only come to boast he has wrong confidence and his wrong confidence really comes to the surface when we start to see the obedience that he talks about and we find very quickly that it is a wrong obedience a wrong obedience you see as he works through the things that he has done we find that instead of picking up God's law and saying let me talk you God through the law that you have given me and how I have kept that he very quickly sideslines that and put it to one side and he instead works through a whole list of other rules that he has kept rules that he has cooked up himself above and beyond what God has asked for there's God's list of rules but don't let me touch on them God let me tell you about my rules that I have kept why is he doing that? Well, because the rules that you construct for yourself to keep are much easier to keep than the rules that God would give you. And why else is he talking about these rules rather than God's rules? Well, because it helps dull the sense that he, there's any issue between him and God because he's going, God, look at all these things that I have done. And the Pharisee's example, what, what example does he go for? Well, in verse 12, we, we see him talking about fasting. He says, I fast twice a week. You work your way through the Old Testament, and for people in Jesus' day, how many times were they told to obey and to fast? Once a year. So God is in the Pharisees' debt 103 times each year. There's 103 fasts on top of what you need, God. Look at all these rules I'm keeping. But as we look at the Pharisee and we see him here with a wrong obedience, do we see ourselves echoed in him? A number of years ago, I was leading a Christianity Explored course when I was working with university students in Newcastle. And one of the weeks in Christianity Explored, we explored the question of, if you were to die today, cheery, cheery question, if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and he was to say, why am I to let you into my heaven? What would you say? And we kicked around some things. And one of the girls who I liked very much, she was, she was lots of fun and was very honest. She said, well, I don't ride my bike down the pavement. You should let me into heaven because I don't ride my bike down the pavement. Here are other rules I've kept that you've not asked me to keep. But I wonder as we look at the Pharisee bringing up these rules that he's not been asked to keep, do we see an echo of ourselves in that mirror as we see him portrayed? Why is wrong obedience here a real issue for the Pharisee? Well, because as the Pharisee works through all the things that he has done that God has not asked him to do, He's failing to notice that there's a whole list of other laws that God has told him to do that he has failed to keep. Let me work with one. Back in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus says this. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. But the Pharisee, as he prays, does not pick up and run with that command, does he? He does not stand there and say, God, I thank you that I've loved you with everything that I am, always and forever. Amen. He can't say that. Neither can you and I as we pray. We can't say, God, I've loved with you with all my thoughts and dreams and actions and words. Why? Because we, we fail to keep that law. The only obedience that the Pharisee can bring to the table as he talks to God about himself is a wrong obedience. It's a feeble obedience. And actually, as we look a bit closer, it is a deadly obedience. Why is it deadly? Well, because his obedience leaves the real problem undealt with, untouched. And that is the problem of his guilt before God. He had 
there's no way that Pharisee could have kept that command. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. He could never have kept that. And so any obedience he could cook up doesn't deal with the sin that comes from failing to keep God's law. We live in a culture today that denies that guilt is a real thing. They say it's a, culture would say it's a construct. It's merely how you feel about yourself. Have a more positive self-image, culture would say. But actually, if we are honest... And if we are willing to listen to our consciences, each and every one of us could no doubt think of things today of which we are thoroughly ashamed, of which we know that we are guilty, of which we wish had never happened, we'd never done, and we hope no one ever sees. One film that gives voice to this very clearly is the film The Talented Mr. Ripley. Matt Damon stars as the lead character, Tom Ripley. And in one rather wistful scene he is found playing the piano and talking with his lover and talking about the topic of guilt this is what he says don't you just take the past and put it in a room in the basement and lock the door and never go there that's what I do and then you meet someone special and all you want to do is toss them the key and say open up step inside I keep wanting to fling the door open just let the light in clean everything but you can't because it's dark and there are demons and if anybody saw how ugly it is and he tails off what he says and he continues to play the piano and right at the very end of the film he says this he laments I am lost I'm going to be stuck in the basement alone and in the dark forever the problem that the Pharisee had not dealt with was his guilt the basement was full and he was boasting of his obedience but it did not deal with his guilt and it leaves us with the question well, each and every one of us has got a basement that's full of things that would make us guilty how can we gain God's approval can we ever be confident that that would be dealt with and that God would give us his approval because boasting in obedience won't get you there so the Pharisee had wrong confidence which especially sprang from a wrong obedience, but not only that, but also a wrong comparison. So the Pharisee doesn't just show false confidence, he also lines himself up with some particularly interesting people to line yourself up with. Did you notice what he says down in verse 11? I thank you that I'm not like other men. And he's really scraping the bottom of the barrel here, isn't he? Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's pushing these people down in order that he could lift himself higher. But notice he's not running with the people at the top of the pile. He's running with the people at the bottom so that he gets a puffed up self, a sense of self-importance. This would be, I have two young sons. Daniel is nine months and Toby is two and a quarter. Now it would be, non, it would be a load of nonsense for me to call up Roy Hodgson this evening and say, Roy, there is good news. I am the answer to all of England's football problems and all of the needs because I am so vastly better at football than Daniel and Toby, my sons. That would be nonsense. That would, get, that would tell Roy Hodgson nothing. Daniel can't even walk. It would be nonsense for me to boast about being better at football than him. And yet we do the same spiritually, don't we? As we look at the Pharisee portrayed here, do we not gain a sense also that we can make those comparisons with other people? The only person the Pharisee should have compared himself to as he prayed, and you and I should compare ourselves to, is God himself. But he does not pray like that, and neither do we, neither can we. 
wrong comparison is a problem for the Pharisee because it does not deal with his guilt. The same is true for us. The basement remains full with things of which we're ashamed, of which make us guilty. So here we find the Pharisee. There is, in the Pharisee, as we look closer at his prayer, wrong confidence, which leads to wrong obedience and a wrong confidence. And the question we need to ask ourselves as we look at the Pharisee portrayed here is, do I see myself in him and how he prays? I wonder how you'd answer that question. But while the Pharisee may pray confidently about himself, wrongly so, there is a man who prays with a note of despair. And yet as we look closer, the tax collector, as he prays, prays with a right despair, a right despair. He is dead honest, this tax collector, as he prays. Straight off the bat, can you notice down there, very end of verse 13, his prayer is very simple, isn't it? What does he call himself? He says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And more literally, that could be translated, the sinner, or even the worst of sinners. You see, the tax collector here is well aware that he has failed God big time. And this is not only evidence from calling himself a sinner, but it is also noted by where he stands. Where is he? It says the tax collector stood at a distance. He's a long way from the front. He doesn't want to call people's attention to him. How does he stand? He said he would not even look up to heaven. He doesn't even want to presume. He can't look because he knows that he is guilty. And he's got a basement full of things that, would, that shames him. And look how he, he stands. He also he beats his breast. So grief-stricken is he at his sin and at how he stands. And it's worth saying that the first step for anybody to deal with their guilt, the basement loaded with things of which we might be ashamed, of which we are ashamed, is to simply recognize that we are guilty. So he, as this tax collector prays, he's made the first step towards gaining God's approval because he has admitted that he is guilty. And as it is with the tax collector, so it is with you and me. If you're aware of things that make you guilty, the first step towards dealing with the things that make you guilty is just to acknowledge them. I wonder as you look at the face of the tax collector and how he prays, do you see yourself? Is there a sense of despairing at your sin, knowing that you are guilty before God? Well, the good news is that the... Right despair does not stay as right despair in itself, but leads on for the tax collector to make a right request. A right request. And his request is very simple. Have mercy on me, he prays. Have mercy on me. More literally, he's asking that God would turn aside his right anger that he knows is coming towards him. He knows he has a basement loaded with things that would make him guilty. And God, he knows that God is, is a righteous judge and will rightly find him culpable, find him guilty for what is in the basement, for what he has done. But also, wonderfully, he knows that God is merciful. And that is why he says, that, please turn your anger away from me. Take it away from me. How can this tax collector be confident that God is merciful? Where, well, where is he standing? He's standing in the temple. And one of the, one of the, the real centers of the temple was the altar. It would, if he was standing at the back, he would have been able to have seen it if he would have just lifted his head. 
And there on the altar was the place where animals, innocent animals, were sacrificed in the place of sinful people. And uh, there the animal was died and took on itself the guilt that was on God's people, the sins that they had done. As such, an animal was like a, like a lightning conductor. If you've ever been on a, seen a high building, they have lightning conductors which would take away the electric current of lightning as it would strike and take it down to the ground. And so it was with God's people that they knew that God's right anger was coming towards them. And yet they knew that a sacrifice could be made which would work like a lightning conductor to take God's anger away, to turn it to one side. And that is why he can pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because he knew that God would provide a means to take away his right anger for the basement loaded with guilt. And you and I, if we grasp that we are guilty before God, need to pray a similar prayer, don't we? And the thing is, we have an even greater confidence that God is merciful, not because we set our gaze upon an altar, but because we set our gaze upon the cross of Jesus. Here is the lightning conductor that takes away God's wrath. As Jesus dies upon the cross, he bears God's anger at sin for sinful people who would trust him. He takes upon himself the punishment for the guilt of people who would turn to trust him the guilt of their sin and he bears it and drinks it to the very last drop taking away all of God's anger Jesus is the lightning conductor that turns away God's anger towards sinful people and so the question is for you and I do we grasp that God is merciful do we get that he is a God who loves to turn aside his anger because he's placed his son as the sacrifice for us as you look at the tax collector and how he prays, do you see yourself? Do you see that a despair at our sin can lead to a right request for God's forgiveness? And the wonder is that the result for this tax collector as he prays is that he goes home with God's approval. What does it say, verse 14? I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went home justified. His guilt is dealt with. The basement has been cleared out. Everything has been placed upon God's substitute, his son. And the tax collector gains God's approval. Okay, what about you and me? What about you and me? Well, back at the beginning, I said the key question is, can we be confident that we can gain God's approval? Remember, this story is told to a group of people who are very confident that they would gain God's approval. But misplaced confidence can be deadly we've seen the tax collector, he's the man to follow he's the play, having right despair leading to a right request can mean that we can be confident of God's approval, but as we looked at both characters and how they pray, we've looked in that mirror, where did you see yourself did you see yourself in the face of the Pharisee are you someone who has a wrong confidence which springs from a wrong obedience Okay, let me, let me give you one warning sign as to what that might look like personally for you do you, if you call yourself a Christian, do you assess your spiritual standing before God by how you're doing in how you read your Bible? I, I, um, I try and read through a number of. Ch- I try and read through the whole Bible each year if I can, which means that I have to have a list of things that tell me what I need to read. And a real danger for me is that I look at all these ticks on these pages and think, goodness me, I must be doing really well with God because I've read my Bible 
so very much. But if I start to think like that, that is wrong obedience, giving wrong confidence. Or, or, or we people who, like the Pharisee, make wrong comparisons. What a, a warning sign for you. Imagine a Christian friend of yours just blows up as a Christian, just really fails and lets the Lord Jesus down. What is your first, your dominant thought as you hear of them failing Jesus? Is it just to say, I, I, I can't believe they've done that. It's just, just, I can't believe they've done that to Jesus. I'd, I'd never have done that. Or is your dominant and first thought to think, goodness me, but for God's grace, that could have been me. If you're thinking like the former rather than the latter, that's a sign that you may well be placing wrong comparisons between you and others. And the warning of this parable is that that does not deal with our guilt. That leaves the basement loaded full. That will not gain God's approval. And ultimately, that means we will be stood on the wrong side of God in the end. Or let me ask, as you look in the portrayal of the tax collector, do you see yourself there? Do you see yourself there? Do you have a right to spare at the guilt of your sin and how you failed to live for God as you ought? Do you see what you're really like? Despair at sin is not wrong unless it just stays as despairing. Despair at sin is a first step that must lead on to seeking God's help from his people, from his word and in prayer. Right despair must lead to a right request. And do you see that God is merciful to you in Jesus? And have you made that right request? You could do that just this evening for the first time. Pray that simple prayer. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And God would love to welcome you as his child tonight. If you call yourself a Christian, is that right request something that you make every... Did you make a request like that this morning? Did you ask for God's mercy to be shown to you this morning? Because if we're Christians, that is something we should pray every day. And if we do that, the wonderful promise is this. That our sin will be removed. The basement loaded with guilt will be cleaned out and done away with and placed on Jesus. And we can be confident that we would gain God's approval. And the wonder of the gospel is that that is just the best thing in the world. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was confident and one was not. One prayed about himself. One prayed for mercy. I wonder which one you are like. I trust and pray that we would be those who are like the tax collector who cry out for God's mercy day by day. Let's pray.